Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 105, where we are discussing G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare. And with me today is that anarchist hoy. The fuse is lit. It's under my desk as we speak. Bombs away. (laughs) And also with us today is the co-founder of Geeks Like Us, host of Psychology at the Table, game master of Clinical Role, and as a psychologist, she runs therapeutic 5e games to treat anxiety, trauma, and depression. Please help me welcome Megan Connell. Hello! Very excited to be here. (laughs) We're so excited to have you. Yes, Megan, it is an absolute treat. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on here to discuss this goofy little book with us. So first off, I would love to know how you got into gaming, that cliche RPG podcast question. Yeah, of course. Uh, Middle school. Like, (laughs) I think that's the cliche answer, right? It's (laughs) middle school. Yeah, no, I so I I'm older, so uh, pre-internet times. So when we were writing character sheets out in notebook paper, and like only one person had the rule books. I don't even know what edition of D and D we were playing, but we made up spells and it was super fun. I loved it so much, and then uh, fell away for for a good long time, and then actually watched uh, Titans Grave on Geeks Geek and Sundry, the show Will Wheaton did, and that got me into like, man, I loved D and D when I played it. Let me get back into that. And so we started playing, we played Fantasy Age for a little while as a home campaign. Then we ran uh, the starter set with my family and had so much fun. And I have not looked back. I play every week uh, and I just, I love it. I right. run games, I play in games and do as much as I can around gaming. And when did you make the, the draw the line between your practice, uh, your professional practice and gaming? That was an interesting one. So uh, I was cleaning the house one day and letting my brain wander around to wherever it went to anything aside from house cleaning, as you do. And I was at that time, I had made my character for the game we were running with my kids. And then I also had my character in the game I was running with some um, strangers I had met on the internet who have now become some of my best friends. Uh, And I was like, okay, these characters both came from my brain. So they have to have something in common, right? And uh, so I started trying to, because they were seemingly very, very different folks. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, all right, come on. They got to have something in common. When I, when it hit me, like, if you've ever had like these realizations about yourself where you like really truly see yourself, I kind of had that sinking sensation in the pit of my stomach. I'm like, oh, oh, I need to work on that. Oh, that's, that's a big issue. And I also had this realization too, that this issue I kind of figured out was behind so many defensive walls. I don't know that I ever would have come to it in traditional therapy. And so then I was like, I, I have, there's no way I can't use this tool. This is such a powerful tool for learning about yourself. And uh, it just so happened that Dr. Boca Mazzaro, or better known as Dr. B, who works with Take This, was on Dragon Talk talking about his work at the time with aspiring youth uh, running games for folks on the autism spectrum using D&D. And so eventually he and I connected and uh, I started running my own games. Uh, my uh, Specific interest is running games for uh, women and girls, where we focus on social anxiety, um, you know, depression, some trauma stuff, but also a lot of finding your voice and building positive peer relationships. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I love it. I uh, with pandemic times right now, it's a little hard to run groups. I ran 
a couple online, but I don't like the online format for therapy groups as much. For fun groups, mm. it works great. Sure. Uh, but a little bit harder for the therapy side. Uh, so probably waiting until things die down again to start running face-to-face groups. Sure. And what is the age range of the girls and women that you generally run for? Uh, 13 and up. 13 up. Yeah, I've, I had a an adult group for the first time. Um, adult groups are a little harder to get off the ground, not because... Yeah, I, I thought it would be because people didn't want to game, but it's scheduling as the mm-hmm. bane of the existence yeah. of every tabletop role-playing game is scheduling. Kids are easier to schedule. They have a little bit more of a set routine. Um, adults, not as much. So even though you do 13 plus, generally it's adolescents that you're playing with. Yeah. And generally I'll have two groups. I'll have like a middle school aged group and then a high school aged group. Uh, but if I don't have enough participants at a time, I'll blend it all together. And it works really well as a blended group as well. Very cool. And what is your history of reading speculative fiction, fantasy, science fiction, horror, and the like? I love reading fantasy. How I got into playing D&D, honestly, was reading Lord of the Rings. Mm. Uh, Pretty much every character I made in middle school was a variation of Legolas. Like, (laughs) as you do. As as you do. Every one of them was some form of archery-based elven you know, which person. I will quickly say I totally relate to because as a little queer boy, all I wanted to play were elven thieves. And it's so funny when I talk to other mm-hmm. little queer boys, that's all they wanted to play, too. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. No, I, I loved it. And like, yeah, playing an elf and like it. Yeah. So I read Tolkien. Um, yeah, I read Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, tried my best to get through the Semarillion. Couldn't do it. Read several of his essays. Uh, then I really got into Mercedes Lackey's uh, Valdemar series read those i've read um uh, uh, i'm forgetting her last name but the crown of stars series i've read some of robert jordan's uh wheel of time series and i've just recently gotten into brandon sanderson's um what is it the way of kings or is that right yeah the way of the case the uh stormlight archive there we go right. sorry there i've been re- i've been listening to music based off of that and stuff I just right. love it right are any of those authors or uh, someone you haven't yet mentioned uh someone that you would really recommend to gamers as uh, sources of inspiration uh, definitely the, the Stormlight Archives and Sanderson stuff, the, the way he thinks about magic systems and character development and stuff is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's a really good book. Um, my husband and I are getting ready to jump into a long-term campaign and he's hoping to play an artificer and like how the magic system works in that series for him is kind of fitting for how he's imagining artificers working. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff where we're like, okay, can we tweak this and bring it into 5e somehow? And pull these in. Yeah, I, I just reading is just such a vital part, I think, of fantasy and of, you know, gamifying life and understanding mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. You know, as a game master, like, you really need to dive into stories, I think, because you are the storyteller, you know, you're narrating and having an idea of story beats and story points is so important. Like, how to frame the dialogue that the NPCs say and it's really interesting, you know, becoming a psychologist, I didn't think I would do a deep dive into uh, literature and like fiction writing. But now that's like, probably a lot of my time is spent not just reading fiction for fun, but just also for my own benefit. Like, before we signed into the call now, I'm watching a talk that uh, three authors are doing on non genetic systems of magic, and how oh, you cool. pull those off. <laughs> so, like, Fascinating. Love it. All right. 
you are the right guest for this show. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you're talking about, you know, systems and, and building and customizations to a certain extent. Do you feel like, for example, in your practice that you need to make those modifications or do you try to work with some sort of more baseline vanilla system for when you're doing sort of more therapeutic games? Oh, gosh, that that's the big question, right? It's like how to run a therapeutic game. And my answer is kind of a frustrating one, I think, for especially for over anxious game masters, because it's a lot of like you're going to bend the rules and change the rules. But in order to do that, you need to really understand the rules. Mm -hmm. Um, I came to be a psychologist by way of being a musician. And so I went to uh, jazz school for college. And the first two years of my music training was getting completely grounded in all the rules of music and learning chord structures and what the ear expects to hear and how to do this type of writing versus that type of musical writing. And then the second two years are how to break all of those rules with purpose. Right. So you can do harmonic improvisation and all that. Yeah, Exactly. And how to do something that's going to catch people's attention because it was unexpected. And uh, I think game mastering is much the same way where there's a lot of like do what's expected, but then also have a twist in there you know, and be will it, it's such a contract between the player and the game master and trusting the players to come up with interesting things and also steer it and then steering that ship around, you know, and, and working in that stuff. So I do a lot of tweaking to the rules. Um, I, I'm a big game master into the rule of cool. Uh, yeah. And I, I'm also a person too, where I try to find the things I struggle with and lean into them. Uh, like when I really identified that I was over preparing too much and I was trying to seize too tight of control of the game, mm-hmm. I started utilizing this uh, deck of cards made by Gem Hammer and Sons, who are friends of geeks like us, uh, called the Deck of Wonder. Mm-hmm. And it's just a hundred random things that can happen. And so like one of my players, I was wanting them to have a little bit more fun. And so I gave them a wand of wonder. So seven times a day they could cast this wand and ha- we would pull from the deck. And so it's doing things like um, you randomly teleport 100 feet or like suddenly like a, um, a chocolate covered raisin tree grows in front of you. There you go. <laughs> All right. I need that and one. It's, yeah, it's just every or one of my favorite ones is everything everywhere suddenly falls prone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's dumb stuff. Some of it's like can be seemingly game breaking, but it was really fun to push myself to be like, OK, how can I start? let go of control mm-hmm. to enhance the story and to make this even better. And that's really, I think a big part of that. And that's, I, I wish I could say, here's the formula for how to let go of control and how much control to let go of and with what type of players, but it it's something that it changes game to game, you know, person to person and dynamic to dynamic. And right. so like, it's, it's a challenge, but right. like I, I stick with five E for the most part. Um, one is a system I know. Um, And my brain does not do well with learning. Like uh, I'm around a lot of people who can read a gaming system book and run that system. I am not, I do not have a brain like that. Mm. I have to play in that system and watch that. I have to do spend a lot of time. And so I really know D and D very, very well. And so it's pretty easy for me to just run D and D and modify it. Mm. Um, But it's by no means the best system out there for therapy. Like, uh, I have some friends who really love the kids on bike system. Uh, mm-hmm. I met the person who made Emberwind, which is actually developed by a psychologist. And like he designed the character creation process to mimic a personality test. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it follows theories of existential psychology. It's a really cool system. I've actually gotten a friend of mine ran it for me, uh, which was really awesome of them. So I could learn it. 
And so there's some really great systems out there. So it's by no means saying like, oh, D&D is the best for therapy. It's just that's what I use. Right, right. And I guess it's like um, by being the virtue of the 800 pound gorilla in the, you know, the industry, it's it's a common language that is easy to to use mm-hmm. with regards to people who may have some background already in the game. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. All right. So we are here to chat about G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Is Thursday and Nightmare. Before we do, Hoy, do we have a Hygaxian word of the day that we wanted to look at? I had Ooh. a I had a good one, but I think I le- we'll go with Rick Burns, all right, which I will play for you right now. Diablery. All right, which means reckless mischief, charismatic wildness. Um, and in this particular case, it's in Chapter 5. Um, this is in reference to um, the, the Polish uh, member of the, uh, the gang there. Gogol. Um, Gogol. Gogol, right. The effect of this figure was not terrible like that of the president, but had every diablery that can come from the utterly grotesque. And so that is the word. Uh, obviously, it was used a lot in the White Wolf games uh, where the vampires would uh, vampirize each other and to gain more power. So diablery. Although I particularly exactly. was fond of the word flaneur, uh, which is uh, a boulevardier, someone who strolls and seemingly is completely uh, a man about town, but is actually also observing people. So I like the word flaneur, but diablery is the word. <laughs> Do you have a word, Megan? Oh, now I I was really excited, though, because there's a a word that I learned in college that was in this book. And I was like, I know that word, just chiaroscuro, which is the play between light and dark. And uh, And that was when they were escaping through the forest. Yes. uh, Yes. Yes. Perfect. And Megan, which edition of the book are you working with today? Uh, I got the ebook of it. Okay. I'm also working with an ebook. I have the 2008 Project Gutenberg ebook. Hoy, what are you working with? I'm reading a Dover edition that I found on the street, which has clip art on the cover. You can actually see uh, the sinister Dr. Bull there. And this must be a Sunday himself. And there's the hot air balloon. It's uh, really well. Um, well, I mean, the clip art is yeah. integrated really well into making a, like a nice actual cover for it. It's pretty mm-hmm, cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was also lucky enough in... Uh, when we were originally doing this project to buy a whole lot of books. And I f- actually have a copy of the Ballantine adult fantasy one. So cool. Which is kind of expensive. Ooh. It's Gervasio Gallardo did the cover and this is the duel. And on the back, you can actually see that there's the anarchists pursuing them. So uh, it's a really nice copy. The um, anarchists. Yeah. Yeah. Anarchists, exactly. <laughs> Air quotes. They're quote unquote anarchists. Right, uh, like, like Antifa. Like it's a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So now we are in the library. We can sit back and relax and start mm-hmm. chatting about the book. Megan, what did you think of The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare? It was an interesting book. It, it definitely wasn't something I would have picked up outside of doing this project, but it's not something I regret picking up. Um, I, I'll say like one bit for me was towards the end, I think. I'm trying to remember when this start, started happening. I feel like it was around the time that they started pursuing Sunday and, and like going through the woods and everything. And there's like, I, I'm, I also was listening to an audio version of it as well. So I'm, it's on a walk and I'm listening to it. I'm like, I feel like this is satiring something, but I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, you know, it's like that thing when people are telling a joke and, you know, everyone's getting the joke, but you're having that awkward moment. Where you're like, I don't know what they're all talking about. So I'm just going to. Smile and nod. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I had a few moments like that too. Like there's the moment where the password to get in is Joseph Chamberlain. And I'm like, I can guarantee you this is some kind of a 1908 British inside joke that I'm just not getting. But Hoy, you actually, because 
Um, Megan, I don't know if you know, but before we record, we also have a, we, we get together with some of our patrons and we discuss the book with our patrons beforehand. And um, Hoy, we were chatting about how like we, somebody there actually knew who Joseph Chamberlain was, or was it uh, Dan? I looked him up, but Daniel knew him, who he was. So Joseph Chamberlain was a British politician and it turns out he was the father of Neville Chamberlain, uh, who was the you know, peace in our time, you know, with Hitler. Uh, so I imagine that he was a very establishment politician. So it's having all these anarchists use Joseph Chamberlain as the password is like as if a bunch of Antifa people had to go like Dick Cheney as they you know, and they were knocking you know, or something like that. So that that was um, one of those references there. Um, so there is definitely, uh, although the book sort of leans towards um, establishment or certainly maybe a sort of conservative viewpoint, not in the American sense of the word, but just in general yeah. sense of the word. Um, that there is also poking fun at authority uh, quite a bit here in this book. So, Yeah, and Hoy, what did you think of this? I really enjoyed this book. I had read it, um, I think, 10, 15 years back and didn't remember anything other than the fact that it turns out that every single anarchist was actually a policeman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, So I didn't get the stuff like the sort of questions of faith and Christian apologetics that were there, which are not heavy-handed, but it is still the, the, the essential root of the, this book. Um, and, um, but the, the wit, the ability to describe light and, and color and sense the very sense, um, uh, sensory uh, depictions in here are, are marvelous and there's genuine tension. And, uh, the, the subtitle of the book is a nightmare, which not obviously doesn't always appear on the cover, but does have that sort of dream logic, nightmare logic at certain points of the book. So I think it's quite successful in uh, most senses that it tends, uh, you know, most things that it tries to achieve. Yeah. And for me, like, this isn't one of the best things I've read, but I did enjoy the act of reading it. I thought there were some really funny moments. I thought the story was interesting. Uh, I really enjoyed also our moments of absurdity. I also really liked his um, kind of witty turns of phrase. And I know that GK Chesterton did not appreciate when people would compare him to Oscar Wilde. Because in G.K. Chesterton's perception, Oscar Wilde was using his wit to tear people and things down. And G.K. Chesterton saw himself as somebody who was using his wit to like build people and concepts up. I don't I don't necessarily know if I agree with that or disagree with that. But um, I did really enjoy the wit there. And I also thought it was interesting that um, although he would make very bold statements that I oftentimes could see laws and the logic of and didn't necessarily agree with. I also thought it was really interesting how sometimes we would be at one point in the novel um, presented with one concept and then another uh, um, we were presented with a very different take on the same concept. For example, at one point, let me go to my note here. G.K. Chesterton says bigamists respect marriage or they would not go through the highly ceremonial and even ritualistic formality of (laughs) bigamy. So then there's that. But then later in the novel, he says, it may be conceded to the mathematicians that that four is twice two, but two is not twice one. Two is 2000 times one. That is why in spite of a hundred disadvantages, the world will always return to monogamy. Yeah. Interesting stuff in there. Yeah. Food for thought. What what do you make of that, Megan? (laughs) No, I like that. That was one of the quotes, too, that I liked of like that it speak. 
it does speak to those kind of deeper and emotional things. And that was like one of the things, you know, our, our like hero Simon, like he's, or yes, yeah, Simon, he's alone. So, you know, like he feels so alone in this. And then like, as he starts to peel back the layers of we're all the undercover police officers, <laughs> you know, you can kind of figure that out pretty quick going into yeah. it. But it was pretty funny. And like, I don't it, like Again, to the kind of feeling of this is like a little bit of a satire. Like it definitely had that, you know, Sherlock Holmes-esque feeling, but it was almost like a way of not poking fun at Sherlock Holmes, but poking fun at people who think they could be Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? I yeah. like it. Right. It was sort of like, here's these guys who think that they're all smart and clever and can infiltrate these clubs and do this stuff just getting played completely getting played mm-hmm. and yeah. so so much so that they can't pick up on it at all um you know and, and just it's just so funny in that way and like uh but like it does have those kind of little profound moments like uh one i don't know if this is the time for this but one quote that when i heard it i made sure to make a big note of it because like i was like wow this really stands out and like speaks to me in the, like the American political culture right now, which was uh, it's from chapter 11. It's like, you've got this er- eternal idiotic idea that if anarchy came, it would come from the poor. Why should mm. it? The poor have been rebels, but they have never been anarchists. They have more interest uh, in than anyone else in being uh, in there being some decent government. The poor man really has a stake in the country. The rich man hasn't. He can go away to New Guinea in a yacht the poor have sometimes objected to being governed badly. The rich have always objected to being governed at all. <laughs> and I find I found a lot of truth in that. However, I also found that possibly he was kind of protecting his own worldview with statements like that as well. Oh, yeah. Because from my perspective, it also seems as though the rich need government to be in place to protect their wealth. And it would actually be in many ways helpful for the poor to tear down some aspects of government so they can have access to more of their wealth. So it did kind of feel like, although there were some very interesting universal truths that uh, that were kind of woven into this, it also felt like he was also potentially defending his own worldview, knowing that there were already flaws in it. Right, right. And he alludes to that when he's talking about the French peasant and that, you know, he has a lot, you know, he's quite wealthy, he has a lot to protect. And then okay, so you you English can't imagine that a peasant could be wealthy, right? The French colonel says, right? Um, yes. Um, but I think uh, to your point, I think you can hold both those ideas in your head because I think what Chesterton is pointing to, and I think we discussed this in the book club, is that the rich need government, but they don't want to be governed by it. It's a system that they use to push, you know, to protect their interests and push everything else down, right? But they refuse to be governed by it. Um, so that's, I think, what he's pointing to more so than... You know, but I do believe that Chesterton does believe in good government. And, and I think so, yeah. too, especially yeah. in the reverence of the police force. And then there's this other quote that I put down, which is the only crime of the government is that it governs the unpardonable. The unpardonable sin of the supreme power is that it is supreme. And that almost seems to be like a, hey, don't blame me that I'm a cis white guy or, hey, don't blame me that I live in a country that's taking over countries all over the place. Like, that's not my fault. Like, I'm just I'm just here living my life. Right. Yeah, I think that both and you mentioned because it's really the first passage you, you, you quoted, Megan, was very apropos when we think about like, you know, Jeff Bezos or, you know, mm-hmm. Elon yeah. Musk or, you know, any of these, you know, hyper millionaire, hyper billionaires. Um, they're not only going off to New Guinea. They're like right, hopping right. off in rocket ships now. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but I think that uh, to the second passage that you mentioned, Jeff, um, 
that he is really talking more at that point about the conflation of divine authority or spiritual authority with uh, temporal authority. And we've kind of, in this country, we've separated for good reason, but in, in, you know, Europe, you know, divinity and the king, you know, the divine right of kings, those things were together. Right. And so we don't Mm -hmm. have that concept of those two, those two things being together. Well, and thinking about when this book was published too, like that's right when all of that stuff was coming to a head. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, the divine right to rule versus, you know, a, you know, democratically elected government and people who actually can think and want to rule ruling. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so in some ways, like there was this powder keg that he's kind of alluding to, you know, alluding to that hasn't gone off yet, but absolutely. And this is right around the corner from world war one. And I Mm -hmm. feel like it is really, really difficult for, for people of our age to try to understand what, it was like to think like a person prior to any of the world wars. Mm-hmm. It was a very different world then. All right. And, and what an anarchist meant then we think of this again, a cartoon bomb throwing, like, you know, uh, literally, a, you know, Wally coyote or someone lighting a fuse or something like that, where this is like the complete and utter destruction of authority and social systems from the conservative point of view, right? Not yeah. from what an anarchist would actually say. Um, and so that's the boogeyman that maybe like Antifa is now for, you know, certain elements of our society. Um, something that's built up that's not necessarily what the people who actually are part of that movement would consider themselves. Sure. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, I did say to you, like, I, in the very beginning of the book, like, I loved the ridiculousness of the election of a new head of the yes. anarchists. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, are you... I'm like, what? <laughs> like, the anarchists are holding an election and having bylaws that they have to follow. Is it, regular, is regular meetings and bylaws. And <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there was a certain amount of it that was very Monty Python-esque in the life of Brian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, like, where, the people's the front Judean of Judea. People. <laughs> yeah. Judea's people's front. <laughs> right. It's like, who's that guy? He's the popular front. <laughs> <laughs> Just the one guy, right. Now, Megan, did you have a particular character in this story who really just like stood out for you? No, I I will say like it, you know, the fact that like it was all guys, you know, uh-huh. like there was a girl for like two pages yes. in the whole thing. You know, I, I very if much that. so I do it. Yeah, I, I do very much so identify with my gender, and I kind of like that. But it, it definitely was sort of like, oh, here's all the ridiculousness of the English gentleman running around. And, like, <laughs> I'm going to go to France. I'm going to have a duel, and like. I do like it's my like I ha- I will fully disclose I have not seen this movie but from the trailers and the reviews like Syme reminded me of Will Ferrell's Sherlock Holmes. Okay, I've also not <laughs> like, seen it. But like the idea of like I'm going to put on a mustache and suddenly nobody can recognize me and, and like when he comes up with you know when he's getting ready to confront somebody and corner them into a duel he's like I've written a 47 part you know <laughs> right. back and forth of our how our conversation's going to go and like that reflection of like what if he doesn't answer the way you think he would why that thought never occurred to me like oh my goodness you are you are truly a genius for understanding that someone could think differently than me how right. remarkable. <laughs> That kind of stuff. It was just so it was ridiculous, but in a great way of right, right. Yeah. kind of being over the top. And since you, you made an interesting point, you pointed out, uh, you know, identifying with your gender, and there is very much an absence of that. Although there's a, and maybe an admission in the very last sentence that there is a thing, right? You know, a feminine principle, the great unconscious gravity of a girl, right? It's the, the literally last sentence there. So, <laughs> is there? Do you think that there is another? 
theoretical version of this book out somewhere that actually addresses a feminine principle or can incorporate that into the same story? Or is this this story because it has to point out that ridiculousness about the British gentleman and, you know, patriarchal yeah, religion? Yeah, story that maybe yeah. is inherently masculine in some yeah. Yeah. ridiculous way. Yeah. And, and this might be a gendered bias, but it is a gendered bias answer. I'll just say that. Like, <laughs> I, I think I see this where when so often in books and in movies and in things like the hook for a lot of male characters that gets them into trouble is stubbornness and not being completely unwilling to let go of an idea once they have it. Yes. And that was the driving force of this whole thing. Like even once they started getting overwhelming evidence that everybody on the council was an undercover police officer <laughs> and, you know, kind of like sitting down and comparing notes and be like, wait a second, the person who recruited us, you don't think it could be our leader. Right? Like <laughs> that could, you know, like, but they're so just fixated on this idea of like, no, he has to be the lead anarchist and we have to go fight him. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that you would see that necessarily in a female driven narrative, but again, that's a completely biased answer. And so, that, no, no, but I think that's, yeah, I, I think I, you I, were trying so to imagine right. a, a, a woman's version of this story and it would have to be completely some other different. Yeah. Right. You yeah, know. because even like the very first, the, the kind of catalyst for this entire story is we have this poet of law and this poet of chaos who are telling each other that their take on poetry and their whole worldview is completely wrong. And that's kind of what causes this entire story to propel forward. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you're 100% yeah. right. So taking this to a gaming side of the conversation... I wanted to run an idea past you and I want to hear what you think mm -hmm. would be the best way to do this. So let's say you are running a game at a convention and you wanted to kind of steal this, this idea of everybody here is undercover. Now, my question for you is as the game master for this, would you tell all of the players beforehand, you were all undercover, but none of you know that, or would you, pass everybody a note and say, somebody here's undercover, but I'm just passing you all out notes so that you can find out who is. And then everybody looks at, reads their note and turns, and they think they're the only one who is, which is, which would be more fun. I think the second one, but like, as you're describing this in my head, what I'm imagining is like at a convention and having lots of tables. Yeah. And each table thinks that they're the undercover table oh. to try and infiltrate, <laughs> like, so, you know, doing something you know, like taking one of like the, you know, descent to a nervous, like kind of thing. It's like, okay, so you're going in against this demonic cult and you got to go in and like kind of ferret out like all the information and make it so each table is thinks they're infiltrating the cults and like seeing what happens as the tables start figuring out like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> wait, you're undercover too? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I guess one of the things that you also deal with uh, is very much issues of trust and risk and all that in, in you know, uh, you know, emotional risk in your gaming. Is this kind of thing as lighthearted as it seems still present some level of risk? Uh, you know, if you were running a game in this tone, um, you know, um, yeah. Most certainly, like anytime you pull the rug out from other people even in a non-therapeutic game i think as a dm like you need to think about this like i um i'm running a game for so my sunday group we've been meeting for years and like i'm running the game right now and i was trying to think about like how the villain would operate and i'm like oh the villain's gonna make a trap for them by creating a honeypot you know so here's this bit of information that they're gonna find and none of it's good mm -hmm. and it's gonna lead them to a trap 
right? And I actually did process with my players afterwards. I'm like, are you guys, you know, are you guys okay with the villain lying to you all? Is that going to, you know, and and trying to give like lots of clues that they don't trust the information you just got after mm-hmm. they after they sprung the trap, of course. But mm-hmm. like, you know, it, it's a hard thing because there is that feeling of betrayal, and I think like the thing as a game master you want to be aware of is again go, to go back to what I was talking about at the beginning. Good writing, right? Is you want your players to feel betrayed by the villain, not by the game master. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Because if your players are being like, yes, you, absolutely. our friend, just pulled the right, you made this not fun. Like you betrayed our trust. Yeah, that's not fun. That's mm. not going to be a good, good situation. But it's like, oh, my God, this vile villain just like they completely outwitted us. I can't believe they did that. Um, and then maybe they could kind of look back at you and be like, yeah, good job. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right, right. But like when they when they attribute the trick to the character rather than to the game master, I think it works a lot better. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And I've never run a therapeutic game of D&D, but I also imagine that in a moment like that, it's a lot of it is going to be about listening to what the players are saying to each other. Like if they're saying things like, oh, God, I don't know if we should trust this person or not. Like what if they're lying to us? They are communicating to us that they are very aware of the fact that they might be being lied to. So mm-hmm. therefore it wouldn't be a betrayal of our trust if it turns out they are being lied to. But if they are like fully going into this a hundred percent, having no doubt that what they're being told is true, especially if you're doing a more therapeutic style game, you maybe want to kind of rethink how you're making the story move forward or, or being much more obvious about putting hints out there that things mm-hmm. may not be adding up. Or also explicitly saying like, you can't trust what, you know, and talking that through of like, I, you know, because like with my therapeutic games, the players are younger. And so it it's talking that through of like not everybody's honest. Yeah. You know, people do lie. And oftentimes they think they're doing something good. We're all the hero of our own story. Mm-hmm. You know, even the the villain thinks they're doing right. They think they're doing good. And so we need to recognize that they might be telling you what they think is the truth, but it's not the truth. And, you know, confronting multiple layers of truth and things. And that, that's a hard discussion to have. And, like, it, it's important to point out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also where we start talking about, like, insight checks mm-hmm. and the importance of insight and doing that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, I like that. Now, now, what is the importance of, again, we're playing roles and, and people are the heroes of their stories. What is the importance of alignment and role-playing alignment in your games? Um, Little to none. <laughs> Little to none. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, and the reason for that is like, look, it, you ask a bunch of teenagers what their alignment is. It's chaotic. <laughs> a chaotic neutral. They're all chaotic neutral. Like, yeah. <laughs> even if they're not chaotic neutral, they're going to say they're chaotic neutral. Right, right. And that's, you know, whatever. That's fine. Um, I don't, I, I, I look at it more in terms of, do you know, law, you know what? I think Gygax only had it between law and chaos to start. Originally, with. yes, yeah, yeah, and, and so there I there was law I actually, neutral and chaos. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that continuum, right? Exactly. Uh, it didn't become the the nine point axis until Advanced Dungeons and Dragons yeah. in seventy nine. Yeah, and, and so that's something I look at more is how much do you follow the law versus how much are you willing to bend and break the law? And then I don't use good and evil. Um, even in like fun games that I run, I'm like, I think good versus evil is kind of dumb. Mm-hmm. And so Agreed. Look, yeah. 
Yeah, we actually, I look at it as selfless versus selfish. Mm-hmm. Mm. Are you going to put the needs of others first or are you going to put your own needs first? I like and that. And that, that changes depending on the time, but most of us have a default that we go to more often than not. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Another yes. quote that I highlighted from this text here that I really liked was um, was a discussion of law versus chaos. And it's kind of in that beginning scene where they're talking about um, where Simon is talking about being a lawful poet and Gregory is like, there's no such thing. You can't be a lawful poet. And Simon says, chaos is dull because in chaos, the train might indeed go anywhere to Baker Street or to Baghdad. But man is a magician and his whole magic is in this, that he does say Victoria and lo, it is Victoria. No, take your books of mere poetry and prose. Let me read a timetable with tears of pride. I loved that, if only because it's a really good way of conceptualizing what somebody who is really dedicated to law might, how they might see the beauty existing in in law. Yeah. Well, and also like how English. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, to go back, like. We love the fact that we are dependable and <laughs> like and boring, you know. Tea time, tea time is, is at the- <laughs> yeah, like come on, that that is what happens. Right, right. <laughs> Amazing, um, but it is actually worthwhile to look at it. Uh, um, and I think again, we mentioned this in the book club. This is actually a good book to think about if you're just thinking about law and chaos at a sort of more both a behavioral but at a cosmic level, right? And um, one of the uh, one of our readers and uh, patrons, Adam, was saying, you know, he didn't really think that this was a good depiction of anarchism. And I said, I agreed. But I thought that what uh, Chesterton was really talking about when he was mentioning anarchism in this book was nihilism and a lack of faith, not anarchism as in a lack of, a you know, an overarching go- system of government. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that he was very much against nihilism. Well, and I would also say that this was what the lawful good citizen would think of as anarchy. Right. Yes. And that that fact that they just don't understand what, you know, it's sort of like in the same way that a lot of people don't understand what Antifa is and mm-hmm. like kind of have this caricature of it in their brain. Yeah. Uh, that's not accurate at all. They think it's like ISIS where you can like go and join and like attend meetings. And- <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, and so like it, it's a really interesting like and again, it's that like thing of what is our idea of the other? Um, mm-hmm. I wrote an article about the um, protests that happened in Charlotte, Charlottesville long, you know, years ago now. Yeah. Like five, six Good years people ago on both sides protest. Well, well, but like, it, but that's it was, what Trump was saying. The good people on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. But like that idea that so much of our problems throughout history, not just, this is not couched to just the modern era is otherism where mm-hmm. we, yes choose to see people as other than us we deny their humanity and like Mm -hmm. it's really interesting when you start breaking down the language that is used to describe people like in like when they're talking about anarchists they're not being like these people it's these anarchists Mm -hmm. they are a thing they are not a who you know it's like the more you're using that language to distance yourself the less idea you actually have of that person and this happens very literally in this book too there's mm-hmm. a moment that I also highlighted that says, nonsense, said Bull desperately. There must be some people left in this town who are still human. No, said the ho- hopeless inspector. The human being will soon be extinct. We are the last of mankind. So because people are disagreeing with them, they are literally not human. And another thing that we also see in this story 
is there's the whole scene where um, Syme goes and joins up with his buddy who's got the car. The guy like rips out this like old, beautiful lantern from his ceiling and like gives it, a, throws it in the car. And he's like, this is what I do for friends. And they just drive off with this. So clearly this guy is like an awesome friend who will do anything for him. However, dot, 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 not that far into the future in the story. Suddenly this guy has turned on them and the entire village has turned on them and they and they are trying to kill them because they think they are anarchists. So G.K. Chesterton is also showing us that people are willing to completely turn on you if they think your ideology is different than theirs. Mm hmm. Which again, like foreshadowing for World War One, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. without him even knowing it, like, <sighs> and yeah. foreshadowing of you know just about every Facebook comment war thread. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> right, and, and I think he's aware of a number of these things. Uh, the uh, the duel, which is my favorite chapter, because oh. leading up to the duel, the, the the humor that you mentioned with the forty three point insult, um, the sensory richness of when Simon's getting into duel knowing that he might lose but he's seeing all oh, the flowers are so beautiful i could sit in front of this almond tree forever you know the sun is like this uh but then also depicting the marquee as a sort of it's very much in an orientalist mode right this, this uh you know eastern tyrant lording it over the mediterranean face of bronze um so um chesterton's a very very smart man he's aware of all these uh motifs and he's using them um how much does he buy into them is something that, you know, probably I would, you know, probably all of us need a little bit more context on. I think he's smart enough not to deploy something um, just as a reflex, though, right? That if he's doing anything, mm-hmm. it's for a very specific effect. But it, it is interesting. Like, again, the dehumanization. When he says dehumanizing the, the anarchists, is that a Chesterton thing? Or is it just those characters who are very sort of conservative, a little bit blinkered, stubborn, these, these policemen, right? Right. Well, and Megan, another big conversation that's happening in tabletop role-playing game worlds is the idea of decolonizing role-playing games. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm sorry, decolonializing role-playing games. And also like the fact that we see orcs and goblins and hobgoblins as these sentient creatures that we can just kill at will because they are entirely bad. I'm curious, like, is this something that you struggle with or something that you actively work against in your therapeutic games? Yeah, I don't have any like blanket kill things mm-hmm. for, you know, like I, I, of course, like low level characters are going to probably fight some goblins and things because they're low, low level. But like it, what has been so wonderful and fascinating in my groups. And again, I run mostly groups for women and girls is how often they find a non-combative way to get out of a situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and like, I'm playing a game right now. Uh, we're playing. I'm playing through Crusader of Strahd with some fro- friends, and I decided to play the most anti-Barovian character. I'm playing a Sun Soul halfling okay. who loves to cook and make soul food. He's <laughs> very happy and trusting, and encounters everybody she meets with compassion. And like uh, we I'm trying not to be spoilery for the game in case anybody has. I know it's been out forever. Like I've avoided spoilers for it because I've wanted to play through it for so mm-hmm. long. But we we've encountered some very powerful creatures who I think you were supposed to just attack on sight. OK, but my character didn't and talked everybody in the party into helping. <laughs> <laughs> and so we've basically set up a lich and a witch on a date oh. <laughs> at this point. I love and, that. Like, I, my character is pen pals now with a lich. 
<laughs> so one thing I want to chat with you about is I love that style of gaming. I love saying yes to things. I love finding different ways of dealing with um, with conflict that doesn't involve combat. However, asterisk, Dungeons and Dragons rules is written, the way that you become a more powerful character is by killing shit and getting XP mm-hmm. from it. So I'm curious, how do you how do you both encourage that kind of play within a system where the way that you become more powerful is by killing stuff? Well, so I'm going to go back to it's jazz, baby, and you, you cut out what doesn't work, right? Yeah. I don't use the uh, level. I don't use XP uh, yeah. in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so for therapeutic games, what I do is XP is based off of behavior. Okay. So if you are showing support to other players, if you are being ready on your turn in combat, if you are being clever, if you are thinking things through, if you're being you know helpful and a good team player, that's how the group gets XP. And, and that's so how the X- group gets it. You don't have individual mm-hmm. XP. No, it's too hard. <laughs> and also, I would imagine if you're doing therapeutic gaming, if one person keeps getting more XP than another person, that's going to make this other player start to feel like they're mm-hmm. not as valued and they don't have as much of a place at the table. Yeah. And like, it's sort of funny because like one of the things we do in therapeutic groups is I collapse the dungeon master screen and put it down when we're processing. So some big emotions have come up for some, some reason we're going to talk about it. And uh, we had one player who had just had, had had a bad week and like needed some processing time for some stuff uh, because game kind of reminded them of their bad week. And at one point, like they kind of calmed down enough and they're more aware of their surroundings in a way. And they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I've taken away from the game. And everyone's like, are you kidding? We're going to get like 200 XP for doing all this. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah, you are, you know. But that's great. Um, So you're encouraging the kind of play you want to see at the table with the way that you are making the rules work for you. Exactly, exactly. You know, that's basic behaviorism, right? You know, use rewards and Mm -hmm. like XP is a form of reward Um, for, you know, I've some friends who actually do negative XP for behaviors they don't want to see. And so if people are missing, like, luckily, again, with my groups, I have not had very much misbehaving at my tables. Um, But like some groups really need that strong hand. And so seeing like negative XP marks going up on their experience chart, like, that's a big thing to you know, remind like, oh, we're losing, you know, we're having, you know, ne- true negative reinforcement or negative punishment, which is you're taking away good things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we better turn that around. Right. Um, now, now, I'm a little interested in sort of like, uh, you know, um, everybody comes to games for different reasons, getting the buy in session zeros, all this, but for a situation where people are like, oh, this is a new interesting tool, like, okay, therapeutic games, or even just your new group, like, oh, this is a thing. I've heard about this thing, D&D, how is this going to help me? Or what, you know, what is the, the pitch that says, you know, hey, you know, come, come and this, you know, this will do something for, you know, hopefully we'll do something good for you. Well, uh, the pitch a lot of times for my therapeutic games comes to the provider who's working with the client. And it's talking about like, what are they going to get out of playing? Right. It's, you know, they for the vast majority of the folks who've been in my groups, there's been a lot of bullying, alien, you know, feeling alienated, not having friends, social isolation. And so the, it's like, here's a chance to come together with other people of a similar age and to have fun and to build strong relationships. And that makes just that makes such a huge difference for all these folks. Like um, 
one of the people who was in my group, the therapist was saying like, they have improved so much over the last 10 weeks. And the only thing that has changed is they're going to your Dungeons and Dragons group. Amazing. They're like, I've worked with this person for six months and seen very little gain. They're with you for just, you know, two hours a week for 10 weeks. And all of a sudden, like there's all these gains. Like this is absolutely amazing. Bring it back to the book just for one second. Did you see like any of your players, whether in your regular games or your therapeutic games reflected in any of the the pseudo anarchists like you know it's like oh that that reminds me of this guy who did this thing in my game or something like that or that that gal who did that you know not necessarily like i could definitely see simon as being like a player type though like he has this there's one comment where they were doing something where he was like oh i just have a ton of money on me right now (laughs) like i do feel like i've had like players who are like well i've got like five thousand gold let's just go buy our let's just go pay our problems away (laughs) so like definitely there there's that feel sometimes with it yeah now while you were reading this book did you come across any character or plot or plot device or something that happened that you're like oh this is fun i would like to steal this and incorporate this into my game somehow uh i liked the chase like i i'm always looking for new skill challenges like that's you know like i said i try to lean into the things i don't i feel like i do well and skill challenges is something i'm really trying to build up and do better um because i have found when i do them in a way that's well received by the players so i'm not gonna say every time but when i do them when they're well received everybody seems to have a lot more fun with those than a lot of other things. So that's where basically put an obstacle course in front of your players and then they have to creatively solve it. And I like to have a time crunch on it. So like when they were chasing Sunday around to, and ended up at his manor house. Uh-huh. That, and he's like fully like in full gummy bear mode. He's like hopping around. And yeah. He's like in a balloon. And right. <laughs> yeah. So amazing. I, I actually had a question for you too, like on your interpretation of the ending. Cause like when it, the way it ended, I'm like, were huh? they purgatory and now he's dead? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, one of our readers, uh, listeners, he said he'd read the last chapter three times. <laughs> right. And Jeff, you even asked him like, we were like, well, what did you I make did. of it? <laughs> so my question for Rick, who had read the last chapter three times, is I said, I know that in the beginning of the story, um, Syme and Gregory, are these like competing poets and Gregory takes him to like basically the anarchist convention. And then we discover that everybody who has been elected one of the days of the week, except Sunday is actually a police officer. And I was like, but Gregory, he's really an anarchist. Right. And Rick's like, yeah, I was like, okay, that's what I thought. So I'm like, so in the end, when Gregory has come back around, what happened? I wasn't, I was kind of confused there. And what Rick was saying is that, um, that specifically, like in that sentence right beforehand, it says that Syme woke up. Um, so apparently he was like in his nightmare, um, but he's not quite sure when the dream began. And so we were kind of having a conversation about how G.K. Chesterton is kind of like Alice in Wonderland meets Kafka and how possibly the moment where that table started um, um started turning like a screw and then went down to this underground lair. That's the first time something truly bizarre happened. So that also might've been like the literal, like Alice in Wonderland down the rabbit hole moment too, where everything at that point became all about really wild dream logic. But the short answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I definitely ultimately, I think it hinges on faith uh, in the, the, the old sense of the word and, and, visions of faith i mean literally on the last page i have says when when men in books awake from a vision right and uh so 
it would you could say it was a dream, but even a dream would be maybe a little bit too literal for I think what Chesterton's intention is. He is yeah. really talking about matters of faith and transcendence. I think to a certain extent, um, mm-hmm. but I think he's also not so clumsy as to say that this is exactly what happened. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily like uh, the end of I believe Dallas season ten when he wakes up and realizes <laughs> the entire thing had been a, a dream. I, I don't think it's that literal, but I do think it's close to that. It's somewhere near that, right. but it's not that exactly. Right. I, my take on it, if it's sort of the more mundane way, is like when you're really talking to, like he and he and Gregory, like deeply disagree, but they're also really vibing on some on some level. Like that, oh, they, yeah. they have this like really profound conversation to the extent where you just completely lose track of time and next thing you know, it's dawn. And this is literally what's happened. They've been talking, they're really arguing with each other or whatever. Those, those college, you know, sophomore arguments that you have, right? And they're walking and next thing you know, they're back in their neighborhood, it's dawn. They see Gregory's sisters like, you know, doing whatever she does before breakfast and they realize they've come back down to, to sort of ground level, but they're also still transformed by, Simon is still transformed by this vision that he has had, this, this whatever these things are now flowing through him. Um, totally. Like, have either of you seen Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar? Mm-mm. No, I haven't seen that one yet. <laughs> I am obsessed. I'm not a huge comedy fan. I love this movie so much. It's a recent movie. It's by Kristen Wiig and the woman who she also co-wrote Bridesmaids with. Uh, they also co-wrote this one and they both star in it. But there is this ridiculous scene where they're on an airplane together. And one of them mentions how much they love the name Trish. And the other one starts vibing on that. Oh yeah, Trish. Trish is Trish is such a great name. And then they both start like talking about like the kind of things that Trish would do and the kind of person Trish is. <laughs> and this scene goes on for forever. And by the end of it, they're like in tears and talking about all the things that Trish has done. <laughs> and in a weird way, like this book is almost kind of like the story of Trish from Barb and Star. <laughs> Perhaps. No, I- yeah. I could see that, like, because it, it is like this. If, if we go into this thing of like Alice in Wonderland, like, because you know the the subtitle of this is a nightmare. Yeah, you know, is he actually just asleep and like he starts off with his dream of like I'm so clever and I would I'll think all the anarchists. And <laughs> no, you know, is it like his subconscious kind of coming up and be like, dude, you're not as smart as you think you are. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Calm down. Right. <laughs> yeah, come down. Come down a few pegs. <laughs> Um, Perfect. Like the depictions of fear and spiritual terror and, and peril, you know, that uh, Simon experienced a couple of times. Did those ring true to you as a, a like a, an experience that people would, I mean, literary is very powerful, but as an experience that you or people that you have talked to have had, like that, you're like, oh, I'm just looking at this face. It's too big. You know, I, I just can't take it in, you know, this kind of thing like that. I've never heard like it, when people are talking about like literal trauma and stuff, yeah. like nothing like that, like it, it, um, it struck me as like Simon's poeticness coming mm. out, you know, that it, it's sort of funny because I think like in the beginning, he's kind of, you know, he's undercover as a poet, mm-hmm. you know, and he it's like almost this like I detest poetry and, po- you know, like, <laughs> but he really is one. Mm-hmm. Well, he did. You know? Yeah, he did say he was a philosopher before he became a police officer. Yeah. So he was a, mm-hmm. he was a philosopher who became a police officer who was pretending to be a poet who is pretending to infiltrate the uh, uh, oh no, who is actually infiltrated. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> it's a <Yeah>. whole thing. <laughs> so, Megan, do you have any final mm-hmm. thoughts about the man who was Thursday and nightmare that you would like to share before we wrap this episode up? No, I think it like it was definitely an interesting read. It's not a very long read, you know, so uh, I, I would encourage people to check it out. It, it was 
like I said, there's some definitely nuggets in there, but uh, I think for anybody who is a historian of the early 1900s, probably it would mean a lot more to them. Cause like I said, I, I feel <laughs> like there's just a lot of satire in there that went over my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you're looking for a diverse cast of characters, you need to look elsewhere. This is not the place to go. Oh, nah. Yeah, no, this is like the same guy five times in a mustache. A hundred percent. There you go. Um, And Megan, where can folks find you online if they want to learn more about the kind of work that you do? Yeah, sure. So my website, uh, MeganSyD.com or MeganSyD at Twitter. Uh, Also, Geeks Like Us, I do a lot of things with them. Uh, Those are the best places to find me. And do you have any projects you're currently working on or anything that's coming up that you specifically would like to get on people's radar? Oh, so many projects. Uh, so recently, I uh, just helped create a uh, Game Master like dungeon journal for planning your games, which oh. I'm really proud of. That's sold, sold through. You can get on Amazon, but it's also through Leilanki Therapeutics. Super duper proud of that. Um, I've helped develop a training on how to become a therapeutic game master. I also do uh, like private trainings where it's limited to four people. I'm getting ready to start one of those on Monday, actually. And then, um, gosh. Book pro- quick, I quick do side question: Do those yeah. do, do those come with CEUs? The one I helped develop for uh, Leyline does the one that's more pri- private, like me and just four four students. Does not. I'm not. I didn't go through all of that unfortunately. Okay. But it's more one on one attention and kind of building that way. Okay. Um, and then, uh, yeah, no, I have a lot of book projects. I do the Brain Noodles po- podcast. Um, upcoming, I'll be also doing the Geeks Like Us podcast. Uh, so I do a lot of things. I do too many things. That's, that's the <laughs> that's the byline of my life. Dr. Megan does too much. <laughs> <laughs> and Hoy, where can folks find out more about us? All right. Uh, you can uh, look us up at Appendix and Book Club uh, for uh, past episodes or just go to your podcatcher of choice, uh, such as uh, iTunes. If you like us, do rate us and review us. Uh, it helps people find us if you want to drop us a note. You can go to appendixnbookclub at gmail.com, or we're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes, so our patrons are able to do a couple of things. One of those things is that they can join us on the Patron Book Club, which is something that we do prior to recording our episodes with our guests. And I would like to give a shout out to the three patrons who joined us for that today. That was Dan Alexander, Rick Byrne, the awesome guy who made our logo, and Adam Styers, uh, thank you, thank thank you to the three of you for attending. We'd also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons: Derek Varn, Joseph Hoopman, Robbie Fioto, Andrew Sternick, Damo Saklas, Jeremy Harper, and Vixter. Thank you all so much for your support. In addition to that, our patrons are also able to vote on which books we cover. And for episode one twelve, the patrons have spoken. We are covering William Hope Hodgson's The House on the Borderland. And we're going to be voting for episode 115 when this episode drops. And your four options are going to be Charles R. Saunders' The Quest for Cush, Roger Zelazny's The Courts of Chaos, Stephen King's Salem's Lot, or Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So those are the four choices we'll be voting on for episode 115. Also, our next two episodes... Episode 106 will be on C.L. Moore's Jarelle of Joirie. And episode 107 is going to be on Ellen Kushner's Swords Point. So we have some really fun stuff coming up that I'm excited for us to cover. And Megan, thank you so much for being on the show today. This was a great time. Thank you so much for having me. It was uh, so much fun, very informative, and a true honor. Absolutely. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on.
The library is closed. <laughs>